Hey, before we get started here, I just want to let you know that as a little thanks for listening, my company's offering listeners to this podcast some free software. So if you want to learn more about that, we have some more details at the end after the interview. Alternatively, track me down on LinkedIn and I'll have a pinned post at the top of my profile. Just search for Joe Meadows and we'll take it from there. All right, let's get started. Hi there, this is Joe Meadows and welcome to Safety Leaders Now, the show where we cut through the noise and identify the strategies and tactics that today's top safety leaders use to keep their teams safe. On this week's episode, we have Stephanie Benet, Director of Safety at BC Hydro. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie. She does a lot of amazing work, not only in, in running a team at BC Hydro, an industry that's you know relatively new to her, but she's been able to bring a lot of great experience to. We talk a lot about that and also about some of the work she's done as far as advocating for women in safety. She told some stories that, that were certainly eye-opening for me. And all in all, I just thought it was a, an awesome conversation. So I hope you enjoy it as well. Let's get started. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, me too. Thanks for inviting me, Joe. Awesome. Okay, so maybe before we get started, for the folks listening, can you kind of introduce yourself, your current role, and and uh, where you're coming to us from? Sure. I'm joining you from the unceded territory of the Comox First Nation on Vancouver Island. I actually am the Director of Safety for BC Hydro, and I lead a team of wonderful experts for, across our province. So it's exciting to join you today. Awesome. Are you in Comox, like in uh, the town of... My parents used to live in Nanaimo, so I'm vaguely yes. familiar with the, yes. the geography. Yeah. So I'm actually based out of the Burnaby office, but in the remote working that we've been doing the past couple of years, I've been at my home on, in Comox. Yeah. Amazing. Well, that's very yeah. cool. Um, it is. Okie dokie. Well, now I have well, that's a bit of a sidebar, but anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll blaze past that. Okay. So <laughs> currently, currently um, in the utility space, but I understand that that's not always been kind of where your, your views on safety or they don't exclusively come from utilities. Can you just give us a little bit of a thousand yard view of, of your kind of journey in your career um, oh, since it started, whenever that was? Sure. Sure. Well, my actual career in safety started about 25 years ago when I joined uh, Canadian Regional Airlines. I had been working with Canadian Airlines, parent company, and I joined Canadian Regional Airlines in their flight safety group. And so that was really my first introduction into the safety industry. Incredibly naive. I never gave any thoughts to whether planes flew or landed safely. I just made the assumption as a young person that they did. And for me, it was really around learning and, and understanding risk at that really complicated level. It was a wonderful experience and it opened up my eyes. I took it like a duck to water, honestly, Joe, because it made sense. There was a reason why things were done. And so I did that. Uh, and I was a young person in my 20s, excited and uh, went on to have a family and did some great consulting with a number of organizations. I was located in Calgary at that time, so I quite deliberately stayed out of the oil and gas industry. My husband at the time was in oil and gas, so I wanted to make sure that I wasn't working in oil and gas. I did an, a great bit of consulting with government groups, so education and a variety of others. Eventually, I did foray into the oil and gas industry where I joined an international um, EPCM, an engineering procurement construction management company, 
eventually moving in from being a health and safety manager up to director for Canada and then uh, North America Central. And eventually, uh, BC Hydro called and said, would you consider coming and joining our team? And so it's been a great opportunity to learn about a different industry. When do you get the opportunity to learn something new? At my age. So having been in the safety industry, but learning around a really a high hazard industry has been really exciting for me. Cool. And I guess for me, having some, albeit different, but let's say oil and gas experience myself, one of the things that's been really interesting for me is watching oil and gas gets a lot of bad press. But I think as it relates to health and safety, I think they do a good job of kind of probably pushing the envelope and and being the tip of the spear for a lot of things. So understanding that a large part of your career was spent in that space can you just speak to the differences you found in moving to a utility? Probably other things that are going great there, but also probably some different challenges. Yeah. Any? Yeah. So I guess I'll make some general, uh, there'll be a bit more um, industry generalizations. So sure. in oil and gas, I would 110% agree with you, Joe, as an industry, the oil and gas companies really came together to push safety forward and make it a priority from creating associations that would support the training and the education consistently of people working in the field to agreeing on a common set of procedures or practices to assess how effectively it's working. And so, you know, definitely with the CAP organizations and then the different industry associations and how they've all melded together to work consistently towards a common goal of safe work execution, outstanding. I think the utility industry is a bit behind that, if I was to be honest with you. But I do know specifically to my industry, you know, there's a lot of eagerness to how can we learn and do better and what can we learn from other organizations, which is actually why I ended up here. Specifically, that was the mandate. Help us be the best, Stephanie. What can we do better? So, For sure. So, oh, yeah. Makes tons of sense. I feel like for people... I don't know, a personal, unverified, anecdotal opinion. But I think that with the the oil and gas space is so interesting because once you understand that, I've found that the more exposure I've gotten to other companies, you can typically kind of place them on a continuum of like, when was oil and gas doing what you're doing? And where are you? You are like, are you 10 years ago? Are you five years ago? And you can kind of, it gives you an interesting skill set to preempt what the concerns are going to be because you already went through those things in the past. That's right. That's something you agree yeah. with. Yeah, that's absolutely it. It's kind of um, almost a bit of a cheat sheet, quite honestly, because I don't I don't have to make the same mistakes twice. Yeah. Um, so yay. That I, For sure. That I, I'm wiser and I know a little bit better and I know where to focus my energies and where I'm going to get the most bang for my buck as far as setting up systems or processes or procedures. And, you know, aviation is well ahead of the oil and gas industry. So it's been an interesting opportunity starting out in aviation, seeing the maturity of their systems, moving into oil and gas, moving the maturity of those systems forward, and then being in the utility industry and them going, hold on, we want to do better. How do we get there? And me going, well, I tried this way the last time. I'm not going to make that mistake again. So it's the the benefit of wisdom and knowledge, I guess, and experience. For sure. Okay. So I don't want to... Maybe we can get back to some of this as we maybe get a little bit more into the details as we as we move <laughs> ahead. But currently with BC Hydro, can you give us a little bit of an insight into what your kind of where you fall within the executive team and then what is the health and safety team look underneath you and the team that you're leading now? Can you just help us understand the kind of scope of what your current role 
Yeah, sure. So as the director of safety, I have four direct reports. And so I have the safety planning and reporting group. I have the safety programs group. And within each of those groups are a number of other groups, of course. I also have the technical safety group. So that's my engineering and my electrical safety experts. And I have the field safety assurance team, which are all of my occupational um, safety and health and hygienists throughout the province. So the entire safety group is, is with me. And then I report into the senior vice president of safety and compliance, who sits on the executive team. And she works on the organizational strategy, but also takes care of other parts of the compliance portfolio which is really in the utility industry around mandatory reliability system, emergency management, and learning and development. So all safety-related training. BC Hydro is unique from a lot of utilities in that we have our own apprenticeship programs too. So that learning and development group also sits as one of my peer groups. Okay. That's a pretty impressive degree of complexity. So, So with that, You've got these four kind of pillars underneath you. What's the entire scope of the safety team look like as far as a headcount, roughly? I'm given these are probably dynamic numbers. I saw on LinkedIn that you're currently hiring. So hopefully it'll change again soon. <laughs> yeah, they are dynamic numbers. So I'd say, um, I would say over 200 at this time, just within the safety group. It is dynamic. The occupational health and safety team, the field team is by far the largest team. In BC Hydro, it's a unionized group, which is very different from other industries that the OSH community is unionized, as well as my industrial hygienists. Very unusual, especially compared to oil and gas, which doesn't have that additional complexity. For sure. Uh, so, but it is dynamic and it's an ever evolving, of course, people go to BC Hydro and they stay there for a very long time. It's one of those, it's so strange coming out of oil and gas. And incredibly not unusual to have somebody, and in fact, I have one on my team, a wonderful gentleman who's done some amazing work in um, my public safety group. 40 years, 40 years, Joe, he's been with the company. And that's not unusual, which is so strange compared to oil and gas, where, you know, if you get three years in with a company, you're like, woo, look at you. I was going to say, rock star. <laughs> 40 months would probably be rare. Um <laughs> Okay, so quite a large team. Yes. I think one of the, one of the largest as far as uh, guests we've had on the show. I think with the exception, I don't know if the episode will be out yet, but we spoke with Heather McDougal at Amazon, and mm-hmm. well, she's global. I'm just in a province, right? Well, yeah, hundred. <laughs> well, they have more safety professionals than many companies have employees. So kudos to her and and that kind of complexity that they're dealing with. So you've got this team, and maybe one of, one of the things that I think might be helpful before we dive into the some of the more specific questions I have, and something that I've realized I don't do well enough on these interviews as I learn to be a host, is to talk a little bit about what the kind of risk environment you're operating in actually looks like. I think when we talk about an energy utility, we, like, we all understand we pay our power bill, but I think at, at a certain level, it's difficult to imagine what are the risks that are being kind of faced in that environment. So in a general sense, can you give us a feel for what are those field safety assurance people keeping an eye on? Maybe in particular, more so than the technical and, and program safety folks. Yeah. What are the risks that your employees are facing? Well, so I, I you know, we, we have a variety of different risks that most people would be unaware of. So just specific to my field safety group, the OSHAs, who are an incredibly dedicated bunch, 
they really are focused on occupational health and safety compliance and conformance risk within the organization. But also within my team, I have an aircraft operations team. And a lot of people don't think about helicopters and planes, but that's how we set up those poles, those remote areas and difficult to access. So I have the aircraft operations group that obviously deals with risk there. I have the public safety group also. And so at a number of our dams throughout the province, there are campgrounds or recreational areas. And so I'm also responsible for the public safety risk, how people are interacting with our facilities, if they're interacting and they shouldn't be, (laughs) all of that. Also an aspect of that is just the general public risk as it relates to, let's say, a power pole. So, for example, the risk associated with hitting a power pole or other companies coming in contact with part of our electrical system while they're executing their work. So there's an entire team that works with those types of organizations. For example, roofers. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of roofing companies have an electrical contact incident. And as a result, they're going, well, we didn't ever consider that. So I've got a group that does education um, and proactive outreach work with them. And then I also have the wildfire risk group. So a lot of people, if you've been to British Columbia, you're well familiar with our environment. We have trees and we have lots of trees. And when you have lots of trees you and people and power lines, you have the an elevated risk for wildfires. And so I also have that team. So it's broad. Yeah, it's I was quite, gonna, it's quite, quite diverse. What um, just anecdotally, when you came, when you made the transition from oil and gas into this, I mean, again, when I think BC Hydro, I'd, I wasn't even thinking even about the dam operations. I'm just thinking probably a lot of lockout tagouts going on here. Uh, <laughs> were any of those particularly surprising to you when you started to realize the kind of scope of the challenge that you're currently uh, managing? Where you're like, oh, never even thought about helicopters or wildfires or, yeah, just curious if you ever had a moment with any of those. Yeah, certainly with the public safety portfolio and really finding out that I had responsibility for making sure that people that interacted or played at our Bunsen facility, which is just outside Vancouver and an incredibly popular place, that I also had to make sure that I put in all precautions to keep them safe as they were enjoying their day trips and and family picnics on Sundays (laughs) to the area. So that was certainly That was certainly new and surprising, um, but again, really capable, competent people that do their very best. I'm curious on maybe just um, one of the things that I often find myself challenged by in, and I think this is probably true of anyone in in a leadership position, is the sort of um, time blocking or, or making sure that I'm giving myself the intellectual space to kind of think through the wide variety of problems I face and I don't get too focused on one of them and realize that, oh, I, you know, I totally forgot about this other piece. So can you, again, whether this be how you're organizing your week or whatever it has, like, how do you hold public safety and aviation risk and make sure that you're devoting enough time to both of those? Like, how, how do you organize that in your mind? Yeah, well, I guess there are a few key things. First of all, I have an incredibly competent senior leadership team that works with me. And by no stretch of the imagination, am I the doer on the team, Joe? I have people that are the doers and I remove the roadblocks. I also spend my time working in strategy. So I'm surrounded by really incredibly, amazingly bright people and I get out of their way so they can do their jobs. The second part is, 
is I have a partner in crime. Her name is Teresa and she's my executive assistant and she blocks my day. And so at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day, I have my think time, which is hugely important for somebody like me. I'm naturally quite introverted and my happiest place is when I'm in my head doing my thinking. And so she blocks my calendar accordingly. And so that helps just a few little tidbits that help. And I always make sure that I understand my role. My role is to set vision. My role is to set strategy. My role is to make sure that we're following through on what we've set out in our action plans and I get out of the team's way. And my job is to communicate and to coach my peers throughout the company. So my operational leaders and to work side by side with my executive team to build their confidence and faith that we're doing the right things. And then to demonstrate that we are in fact. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just thinking through this and I'm probably doing a little bit of like sort of transposing what you're saying onto my challenges so that I can ask a thoughtful question. Hopefully I don't mess it up. (laughs) Uh, But I'm curious, you know, you're coming from such a different environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is maybe, you know, we're we're talking about the, the leaders part of safety leaders now in this case, in that I'd be curious to explore you know, I, th- I think you art- articulated your role as a leader pretty clearly there that you're ideally doing as little as possible so that you can be the leader of the team. But when you come into a role as you did, where the challenges are so different, can you just talk a little bit about how did you walk that line at the beginning to make sure that you were informed enough about that kind of ecosystem of, of hazards in this case to make sure that you're building a strategy that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. h- how did you navigate that when you first showed up so that you, you could know where you can get out of the way? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, I have this discussion with younger safety professionals who are looking forward uh, or wanting to aspire to leadership roles. And I think there are a few things that I did really well. And the first one was that I understand the benefit that I bring to an organization. And that is, I'm a systems thinker. So I'm not a safety thinker. I have happened to have come up through the safety discipline, but I am by far a systems thinker. So I'm never just thinking about safety. I'm thinking about how we interact with every other part of a large organization. Um, And I'm always consciously aware of that. The other pieces is with my senior managers, I set really clear expectations around what I needed to be notified of. I need you to give me a heads up on these following types of issues. I need you to understand that I would rather know in advance versus being surprised. I need you to come with me when you identify a problem, but also bring some potential solutions and not one solution, but some potential solutions. I need you to be really comfortable that if I ask you a question, it's not a personal attack, I'm seeking clarification. And so once I set those, I was able to get the right level of information. It's not 100% foolproof by any stretch of the imagination. I do get surprised on occasion, but I like to think that it's never around me getting upset about something, but it's rather me reaffirming in a dialogue with that particular person or that group that I need to know. And here's why Hmm. we subscribe to a learning culture and not a laying blame culture. And I, I like to think that I bring that into my leadership style. So I'm not about to get angry or put people down or be unforgiving, but rather say, this is what I'm looking for. If I wasn't clear, ask questions. Please feel free to ask questions. I'd rather you clarify than waste a bunch of time going off and doing something that's not meeting the needs and then come back. And I will share with you, uh, (laughs) one of my team members calls it, Stephanie likes, it's a Benet Brown term, the SFD. 
And so um, I'm going to call it poopy, but S stands for something else, but it's the poopy first draft. Okay. Yeah. And so I would rather you do a first draft, do a check and balance with me. I'll say yay or nay or build this out and then go back so that it's not continual iterations and it saves time. Yeah. I think that's a very solid strategy. I know (laughs) Val, who produces this show, is on this call right now. And I think think that's a good term. I might steal a little Brene Brown there, but I think, yeah, check in with me. Don't spend three weeks on this and then check in and then be mortified when I I don't love the direction. I think that's so easy to do. So when you come in here and you're you're setting up these relationships with senior leaders, some of whom have been in a role for 40 years, you're coming in as the, you know, oh, this oil and gas person who's come in to, to kind of set the tone. Is that when you're setting those clear expectations, was that a a singular communication where you print out a note card and you say, this is the thing, or is that something that you're, you're communicating on a routine basis or kind of how, how does that look? Are you doing monthly check-ins? The more detailed you can get on the nitty gritty of how this works purely for my own curiosity. I'd love to know uh, how do you do that? Yeah. I think when I first joined the organization, I'll be honest with you, you know, I was somebody coming from the outside, which is very unusual that my organization hires somebody from the outside. They've had a change in philosophy and they understand the benefit of that. But certainly within my own team, it was like, who is she and why her? And I think that you come with the understanding that, listen, I'm a safety person. I'm not here to fix or send everybody to the curb. I'm here to observe. And you can say that over and over again. It's not going to appease everybody, Joe. But you can't worry about everybody all the time, right? You can't worry about the people that won't come along with you. So, and then with my peers in the organization, it was around having a dialogue. And this is something that safety people know well. You go in with two ears and one mouth and you use them proportionately. You do more listening than you do talking. And you ask really key and important questions. What's keeping you awake at night? What's the one area of opportunity that you think could make an, you know, a huge difference right now? Hmm. What does that look like to you as far as effort? And then you kind of take it back and you do your observing. And so those have been really key questions in building trust and relationship. And then following through, you know, the other thing, and I say this a lot, and I I was speaking at a conference last month, I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. And I also fail fast and I fail forward. And so I embrace failure as a way of learning. And then I learn and I don't forget. And so when I've made those mistakes, I've become a better leader, not a perfect leader. And anybody who puts the idea of leadership out there is that you have to be perfect and infallible. It's not achievable. And I think that we've got these expectations of leaders in our company and they forget that the flip side to leadership is followership. Mm. So you have to be a good follower too, right? And if somebody sets the direction and even if you disagree with it, you have to say, okay, can I understand why? they explain, and then you follow. So there are two sides to the coin. We spend a lot of time talking about what makes a good leader, but we forget what makes a good follower. Yeah. There was a quote that I read from, I honestly, I I forget the attribution, but maybe I'll add it in later. It was a CEO of some prominent technology company. And she spoke about, you know, one of the things she kept on a sticky note on her computer or whatever was, you're not doing something that you should be and your personal failings are negatively impacting the team. And for her, part of being an effective leader was to a certain extent, just coming to peace with those terms and not seeing that as the end of the world because it's uh, 
you know, that's, that's something that we all kind of negotiate in whatever way we can. And it's, uh, yeah, it can be, be a little tricky sometimes, but without getting too philosophical, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. Um, you know, well, listen, we put our pants on one leg at a time too, right? Mm-hmm. And we have really incredible expectations of leaders in our organizations. And I have never, ever met a leader. And I say this to the safety teams all the time. You know, people go into safety because they're caregivers by nature. You have to be. That's what makes you stick it out because it's a bloody hard job. You're always having to fight to sell what you're trying to do. It's There are very few companies that go, yeah, whatever you want, safety. Whatever you want. <laughs> very few companies that do that. So it's constantly being challenged and being really comfortable with being challenged. But leadership isn't hard. And we have these ridiculous expectations that our leaders are super, superhuman beings. But they go home and they cry. And they have challenges. And I think it's okay. It's not, you know, we have to be, we have to allow them the grace to be real and not have the answers. And COVID certainly should have highlighted that to a lot of people that, that the leaders in their organizations didn't have the answers and they were all scrambling to figure out what to do. And I bet you there were many conversations and many boardrooms that were like, well, we didn't see this one coming. (laughs) If you did, I would almost be concerned. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I think that 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 all makes a lot of sense. And I want to maybe take a little bit of a pivot here. Maybe our listeners may be appreciative to get a little bit off the philosophical and talk a little bit about something you just said, which is that challenge around, again, I think a lot of safety professionals, a lot of people who listen to this talk about the fact that in safety, you're always viewed as a spend department. Your, you know, your ability to influence what's going on in the company is always challenging because typically your ability to influence the balance sheet is pretty limited. And so what, this is one of the topics that I'm, I'm really always keen to talk to folks about is to understand the strategic approach to that internal sale. So can you just speak to maybe based on your experience and that kind of 25 years you've had of, of having these at-bats, when you're approaching any project that you're trying to sell internally from a safety perspective, how do you kind of break that down so that you don't waste your time? Yeah. So I think there are two key things. And I think you're slowly starting to see the safety industry move towards this as people move forward in their careers. The first one is to be business centric in how you present your ideas. And by that, I mean, understand how the impact of what you're trying to move forward is going to affect other parts of the business. And that could be people process tool-wise, training, budget, whatever it is, headcount. And so having a really clear understanding of what that is and, and using those terms and speaking in that language, the language of business. And you'll hear safety people talk about it all the time. And I say this to our younger professionals, I'm not out there doing safety. I'm not out there doing workplace inspections, but I'm constantly talking about safety in the language of business. And so I think it's imperative that we learn what that is. And I think the second thing that we need to understand is that it flew right out of my head. Another thing. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> okay, well, let, let's maybe uh, to try and get you back on yeah. the. What I'd be interested in knowing is, can we? Could you give me an example, and it can be like a, a totally made up one of 
of what that would actually look like. If you were trying to sell something either at your current company or when you were in oil and gas, if, if that's more comfortable, like what does being business centric mean when you go about one of these projects? Sure. So I'll give you an example. I have this amazing senior vice president and every time I go in front of her, she asks me the same questions. So, and every time I go, the first time I was caught off guard, the second time I wasn't. And the first, her questions are always, Stephanie, how much effort is this going to take from my department? And how much headcount are you going to need? So it doesn't matter what it is. She's looking for effort, whether it be time or dollars, and she's looking for headcount. How many people is she going to have to put forward to implement this particular idea? And so that would be the language of business. And even in discussions with my peers within the organization, it's always around, this is what I would like to do. This is how it'll impact you. And so they may not necessarily know how to seek to understand that type of information. But if I present it in an idea where I'm I'm really um, centric on the issues, what they, if I'm answering their questions before they ask them, it's always an easier sell. And because I had that momentary brain fart, the second part of that, how you get things moving forward in an organization is that as a safety leader, you don't cry wolf. And by that, what I mean is, is that not everything is an absolute necessity. And so my job is, is to make sure that I'm always able to prioritize the work that's coming. And if I go to the executive vice president of operations, I can say, this is, this needs to be done. And here's why this is the priority. If we're going to focus our time, energy and dollars, this is where it needs to be. And here's the benefit that's going to be seen. And I rarely use that frivolously. Well, I I don't, I don't. And that's a very unusual thing because safety can be so personal to so many people. Everything is a safety issue. People can turn everything into a safety issue. And it's not necessarily a safety issue. Mm. It could be a performance management issue. It could be uh, a maintenance issue, you know, around scheduling. It could be a training issue, but it's not necessarily a safety issue. The outcome could be a safety issue. So you need to know where to point and bring people's attention to. Well, and I think that's really interesting. And I guess what I'd be curious... I know you speak at a lot of events and I know you, you're associated with, with a number of industry groups. And so you probably hear a lot from other people around how the, about the challenges they face. So mm-hmm. if you think the way to solve these problems is by not crying wolf and being business centric, how do most people approach these problems? And what do you think it is that they're doing wrong? Like it, what is their approach typically? And I guess, is it about crying wolf? Do you think there's other tendencies? Is it just by being a little too... Uh, you know, holier than thou, which I feel like can sometimes be a, a, a guilty in the, the safety profession. What, what do you think people are doing wrong? Yeah, it's, you know, and so I guess I would say I don't necessarily, it doesn't land as holier than thou to me. What I think it does, it lands as, is that everything is of equal importance. Yeah. And when you're running a company, it's not. It's not to say that it's unimportant. It's to say that there may be other things that need to be dealt with that are emergent that need to be dealt with in priority. And so often as newer to the industry, safety professionals, everything has the same weight. It's got to be done. It's got to be done because the consequence also has the same weight. Somebody could die. Well, could you be a bit more specific? How often do we do that? Is that really an issue? If we changed our training over here, could that be addressed? And so when we 
explain, and it'd be the number one pet peeve of many executives too, when everything comes in as being the most important thing, their job around an executive team table is to manage the business and make sure they're able to give that weight. So if you want to move into leadership, you have to be able to present your ideas properly weighted. And that's what I mean by not crying wolf over everything. Yeah. So that ability to kind of just look at things and to a certain extent, it's, it's having the empathy that I think safety people are rife with as it relates to the, having empathy with the workforce, but also having empathy with the leadership team and saying, if we go to them and say, everything's an emergency, how are they going to, and honestly, this is, I'm really glad you're talking about this because I think this really speaks to what, what we see as the kind of primary thrust of this show is trying to break some of those things down and say, if you want to be viewed as kind of an effective executive on your team and you go in and and cry wolf on absolutely everything, people aren't going to trust your judgment because you, you're failing to kind of identify the nuance in various situations. So yeah, I think that that's really, really powerful. Do you have any recommendations for people on how they might... So let's say somebody sees some issue in their workplace they have some great concern about maybe it's something that's been around forever, but all of a sudden eyes are on it. I know it might be tricky because we're speaking very generally here, but if you were coaching that person through how to make a presentation for a business case, for some tool to solve this problem, what would be the things you'd be asking them to make sure that they're kind of prepared to succeed? Mm -hmm. I think that there are always a few things that I look for. So when I coach people, it would be, have you clearly identified what the actual problem statement is? Hmm. And so once you've actually identified what the problem statement is, have you been curious around other key contributors? And so when somebody from a safety group says that it's just a safety-related problem, I often shake my head and go, no, it's not. I can guarantee you that if we start to ask the right questions, we'll see it in different parts of the organization, right? And good investigators will ask those questions, not as they relate to a safety incident, but to a business out of curiosity. And so have you asked a variety of questions so that you're getting the right information? And I always say, what is everybody else doing? What is everybody else doing? And tell me not just about the electrical industry, but tell me about other industries. Is there a best practice out there that somebody is doing that we're not aware of that would make sense? Is there something that we should know? And I think that's really valuable in how they present. And I think you're absolutely right. Safety people, especially when we're field focused. And a lot of people think that safety begins at execution of work, that it's a field-based philosophy. And I'll always say, no, it's not. Safety begins all the way at the beginning of the company, you know, and how you start to plan your capital projects, what it looks like when you're sourcing. Safety begins all the way back in the system. But that said, I think it's really important that people understand that they have to speak in the language, they have to have empathy for the leaders the same way they hear the problems of the people that are trying to manage and execute the work. And so they can be a really positive conduit between the two. And that's actually how you'll move ahead in an organization. Well, a thousand percent. I think that the, again, you've hit on another topic that, that I feel like I talk about fairly often. And it's that whole, you talked about the occasionally myopic focus of safety professionals on, hey, this isn't, we're only cared about you know, when the rubber hits the road and we're doing work, making sure that we're following a given procedure. But one of the things that we've spoken about or in the sort of dialogues I've had at my company is that a work order is a risk management tool. The reason we create work orders is so that a bunch of people don't just show up for work every day and go and mess around with things. So I think that there's a lot of space within the safety profession for people to maybe take a little bit of a step back and say, oh, maybe if we kicked off a campaign to 
help the operations team revise the way they actually write their work instructions, that might have a bigger, have a larger return on investment than some weird safety program or telling people to wear gloves or having another safety meeting. But we put ourselves in these boxes that I frankly don't understand at all, like where these things have come from. And I guess one of the things that I am really probably too passionate about is that I think a lot of these things come from the world of, or it comes from the incentives that companies create. Is that safety is relatively new as a profession. And so unlike parts of the business that are measured through financial metrics, companies have really struggled to find what do we track to know if we're doing safety correctly and often have created it, have started to track things that have incentivized some of these more isolated behaviors. So one of the things with with all that said, with my soapbox around metrics, <laughs> is there anything, or I guess, what are your thoughts on safety metrics generally? Let me just <laughs> leave it there and we can jump off from that. Well, I'm just, I want to follow up with how a statement you made around a work order, how you can help an organization with a work order. And I think the reason why safety as an industry gets so myopic is because they only think about safety. And when you're proposing changing a work order, you're talking, you're, you're speaking in the language of risk management, which is where a safety person's head has to be. Yeah. So you have to use a risk lens. That means that you have to know about other types of risk outside of safety risk, which is different. And we don't necessarily teach people in our educational programs in Canada about other uh, risks associated with running an organization. I think metrics, you know, gosh, how many papers? Metrics are generally done poorly in organizations and they are coming from a financial space. It's easy to measure money. It's easy to count. So I think in organizations, you know, when it comes to metrics, you have to, I love all the different safety management philosophies that are coming out right now, because at the end of the day, there's a piece of all of them that's really good. And when it comes to metrics, they all measure something different. But at the end of the day, here's what a board of directors wants to know. Did we seriously hurt anybody or did anybody die on the job? Mm -hmm. Right? That's what your shareholders want to know. And so you as the safety person in your organization have to at least be able to measure what's adding value to your organization. And so if you can focus that on what's adding value in your organization, where can you demonstrate you're adding value that's in your circle of influence? So a lot of safety metrics are reliant on other parts of the company, and you're going to set yourself up for failure each and every single time. If I measure what operations is doing and I have no influence over it, it's not going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So I have to measure what I have influence over. I have to understand what good looks like. And I have to understand what value looks like. And that's what I need to measure. And what do you think some of those things might be? Do you think there's anything that falls into maybe those camps, those value generating good metrics that maybe don't get the attention that they should? Speaking generally about different companies, I, I know they can be sort of company specific, but... Yeah, you know, I think a lot of companies will do um, work around leading indicators and everybody's got their philosophy on it. But I think that first of all, fundamentally, you have to look at your organization and where your gaps are. And so for me, I put a lot of effort around, I've got a very strong regulator in BC that has a focus on back to basics. And that's really for WorkSafe BC. And I would dare say that they are the preeminent regulator in the country, probably ahead of all of the others, including Ontario. Yes, I said it. 
<laughs> but and more in alignment with OSHA than other regulators. And so they tend to have a back to basics philosophy. So I'm looking at what systems and processes I have in place that I can measure proactively that are meeting those requirements because I can't get away from that. I've got a regulator and that regulator is going to write me orders on areas that I'm not. And so talking about things that aren't important or engagement is great, but I still have to be, I'm accountable for that to my executive and to the board of directors. So I have to look at that. And then that's why my field team is actually called assurance. And so what they're doing and what we measure there is their interaction and their are they're checking. So they're checking to make sure the system isn't drifting, the processes aren't drifting, they're being properly applied so I can get ahead of anything that may be a gap in the overall system. To whatever degree you're comfortable, could you give us any examples of what it is they would be checking just as general things? Like what are they keeping a pulse on? Yeah. So generally they're keeping a pulse on what I know to be higher hazard activities. So let's say we've got a group of people in our organization called safety advocates and they're experienced electrical workers who go out there and they do the coaching of the crews on new high hazard work. So they do work observations and they go out there and they have very specific conversations around things that they want to see. And those will be things that are high hazard are highly identified by our regulator or where I've seen gaps in the system. Uh, The field safety team will go out and, for example, do confined space or asbestos observations. Those are both driven by regulators as being high hazard areas of work and in complex systems where not every, for example, confined space is like and similar. You need to make sure that many different people doing many different pieces of work have the same understanding of risk. And so we're going out there to have the conversation to make sure that we're actually in conformance, but it's all conversation-based. So I'm more inclined to measure that. And like I said, because we are a learning organization, it's not about counting punitive, counting people that don't do things, because I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what that conversation looks like. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I I think it's so interesting to hear the different ways that people are approaching these problems because I think it's such a complex kind of multivariant issue that I feel like everybody is trying to wrap their heads around right now. You know, the I don't mean to sound judgmental, but I feel like the, a lot of the conversation around leading indicators, anyone with a certain degree of intellectual honesty can look at many of the things that are purported as as leading indicators and say, this isn't really leading anything. But I think there's such opportunity here. And I think you're kind of speaking to it where an analogy that I might use, you know, I work in the software space now, and we might set a goal for our company that we want to you know, have $20 million in revenue next year. And I feel like that is the, the TRIR. That's what you're yeah. reporting to the board. But if we went out there and just kind of wung it and then just said, this is the number, well, that wouldn't be very defensible. And I feel like that's so much of what safety does right now that, you know, we're, we're looking at what are the, the true leading indicators that are getting us to those numbers. And then what are the things that we're tracking on a weekly basis? Like, you know, how many people went to our website tells us something about our, how many people are interested in us as a company, which then tells us something about how close are we to tracking on those metrics. And I think 
I don't know how to how to create that community or where those conversations are taking place, but I think there's such a, a space for that, whether it be saying, what are the conversations happening in, in the field? That's going to be one of those little dials that we want to turn, but how do we develop this more complex understanding of what's happening? Because I think in a world where so many companies are trying to create a, a work to zero space, but the only thing we use to correct our behaviors is, well, somebody got hurt, like, let's go do an investigation you're going to have no way to keep yourself at zero if that's the only data point that's driving you strategically. So yeah, I, I think as we look at these problems, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Anything to add? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's the, the reason why there's such a level of complexity for me around creating effective metrics for safety that aren't just quantitative is because we're one of the few areas of the business where we there's a human behavior aspect of it. And that's really hard to pin down because people bring to work everything that they, you know, their biases, their experience, their bad night's rest, the screaming baby um, and everything else. And so what you have to measure is the effectiveness of the systems around them and the redundancy that you've built in, hopefully, so that when they bring all of that to work, nothing bad results. And mm-hmm. so, um, and that's the complexity. And a lot of people don't understand that about safety. It's just, you know, it's not as simple as following a project manager, PMP for setting up a major capital project and boom, you have this milestone and boom, you have this gate and boom. It's not that quantitative whenever you have human behavior. And so you have to allow your smart people to manage risk appropriately and make sure that you've set the system up around them that if they're having an off day and those happen because we're all human, that the consequence won't be severe. Uh, uh, a thousand percent. And I think that you, again, you're, you're I'm interviewing you, but you're teeing up so many of my talking points. I, I think <laughs> no. the, the, the uh, one of the things I'm always talking to our team about again, like as we think about this on that systems level is like, how do you build these things is so much of, of safety has been focused on quantifying the what of a job. Like, what are we doing and how do we build some safety nets around that? Where it's quite clear if you take a step back that the kind of classic five W's, the kind of who, what, where, why, when, all affect the risk of a given activity. But we measure one of them and then we say like, ah, didn't see that coming. Where did this come from? And it's... Um, I think understanding and and building tools that take into account more of that human factor, more of all those kind of dynamic situational elements is that's what I'm excited about. But anyway, I, yeah, I I agree with you, Joe. I mean, honestly, you know, when you look at an organization and how you set up leading safety metrics, you look at what's supply chain measuring Mm. when they're procuring organizations, you know, what are they looking at? You look at your major projects group, you know, and how are they determining, you know, what weight have they given to the safety calculation and this, you know, in determining whether it's a go or no. You look at the executive team and are they, you know, understanding the budget that's required to make sure that their people have the proper training and what actions you're taking in that space. So those all contribute to it for sure. And it's not easy, but it's not just one thing. And the interesting thing is when you set up a system, you set up the what. But where we people fall down is they forget to show people the how. Yeah. You know, so you then the the trick is to translate that what 
into the how. And then that's what my field assurance team checks for understanding on. Gotcha. You know, is the how understood? And what does it mean for a level one manager? What does it mean for a crew lead? What does it mean for a site supervisor? You know, how? Like, the what's easy to do? You write a program, you publish it, bango, bango. With that how and and making sure that people know how to do those, you know, again, how to do those jobs in kind of a, a safe and consistent way, you're leading that through conversations. Is there anything you're doing to keep tabs on that on an ongoing basis, like continued proficiency? Is there anything you've done to kind of keep tabs on, on where people are? Yeah. So I think, you know, competency, the competency landscape within the business environment is really, really interesting. And so historically, I think a lot of organizations from a competency perspective still think it's just about training, Hmm. but we know it's at minimum a three-legged stool, right? It's about training, education, and experience. And so actual understanding of, of what that mentorship piece looks like, that how do we measure that experience piece in the field is something that most organizations could do better. And that's basic. That's job performance competency. But I'm not talking about the different, the other avenues of competency that can they use a computer? Can can they understand a financial statement depending on their role? I mean, there are many, many different things. But I think in organizations, when they set up, what does that look like? They need to look at competency and measure that better. Wait, you're smirking at me now. <laughs> well, I'm I'm only smirking because I you just gave me a product idea that I've written down, but I won't describe it because I wouldn't want to ever have to pay you royalties. So, no. oh, I think you it, said maybe we'll have that conversation offline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but but again, I, I think you're you're totally correct. I, I think that those are some of the things that that we're most excited about. And I guess with that, I'm somebody who is, or I guess you may disagree, but I believe that there's a big space and I wouldn't be doing what I do in my day job if I didn't believe this, that I think there is kind of a a revolution coming in the way that people think about and measure safety or fundamentally kind of, we phrase it as the way that businesses understand risk is going to change as, as data starts to, you know, have an impact there. So that's my belief. I'm curious if you have any kind of what do you see as the biggest opportunity, but whether it be with technology or anything else in health and safety going forward, what are you kind of projecting as, as the next big thing? Something I'm, I'm, I'm always very curious about as, you know, as a strategic leader, as somebody who's thinking about what are your next big problems? What does that tell you about where the industry is going? Yeah. You know what I think is really interesting. So, uh, so I'll share with you a problem that I think a lot of businesses are managing. So the speed of change in the technology environment means that the tools that we're bringing in for our workers may, with our intention, make work easier. But the speed of change that happens makes managing the change and the sheer volume of change for them a real sticking point. Mm. And so if I was to think, you know, the world of app development and organizations has really, you know, taken off the last 10 years. And it's certainly from a field execution perspective has made that reporting aspect of people's jobs easier. Great. The problem is, is that if you were to ask any of the field workers, they'd say, please, God, not another app. Yeah. I've got 50 on my phone, you know, and please not another one. And then literally the moment they're rolled out, they're consistently changing. And the organization always has to answer the why behind it. It's not like downloading my um, fitness tracker on my personal phone. That's going to tell me I walked this many steps. 
because I understand the why I downloaded it. But when it comes to work-related, it's not as easy. I think it'll be interesting from that perspective, how we get more comprehensive and we're not just developing EHS tools, but we're developing risk management that are inclusive of safety in that space. And so that for me, will be really interesting from an IT platform perspective. When are we going to bring in ERMs that have that inclusive, really beneficial, that value stated in the safety space? And here's the benefit of that. That's a hard conversation for a safety person to have when it's not something necessarily in their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh... I'm not sure that was an answer. Was that an answer for you? Were you, do you, were you, hey, virtual technology, but that's, you know, we have that already. So. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not I, even I, thinking about that. I think that's an answer. I think you hit on something. Well, I think you hit on a meta problem that I see a lot in these conversations, which is that speed of change issue. When I was a field person and I was in an operational leadership role, the reality of, oh, you know, somebody in the offices signed a deal with company X. Yeah. And now all of the excitement that took place in the office, but so many companies that have EHS concerns are distributed and you've got people all over the place. And so you got a bunch of people in the field who get a memo saying, we're now on week two of this rollout of some product they've never heard of before. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, I would encourage people to think about as they go through those problems, as somebody who's thought deeply about this, and granted, I have some biases here, but I think the I think companies need to evaluate the way that they're approaching those internally and have some fights with their procurement department, because I, I think some of that, in my opinion, has to do with the standards that people have developed around enterprise IT deployment. And by that, I mean, when you roll out I don't know, Microsoft Teams as an organization, all IT departments right now require that like the vendor we choose supports and trains and implements the platform. We don't do that internally because we have other things to do. And I think one of the things that we see routinely in the EHS space, and I think it comes around the enthusiasm for training, is that people want to build their own implementation plans. Uh And I think that is one of the most short-sighted things you could possibly do because of that. You want a vendor who's going to be evolving and changing over time, but it should be, if they're going to do that so rapidly that you can't be training people, it should be their responsibility to handle the training. So I think that that's an opportunity in the way that people approach things just on a systemic level in focusing on the problem. I think it goes back to that problem statement that you spoke about is how do we Mm -hmm. figure out what the problem actually is? We would love new technology. But if we have to spend all our time training people on it every four months, we're not going to solve that problem. Well, and, and you know, I think it shows the disconnect between the front line, which is essentially saying, listen, fine, bring it to what's in it for me. I just yeah. want the damn thing to work. When I press that on button on my computer, I want it to go on. I want to be connected to the system. That's what matters, yeah. you know, versus the IT group that's trying to make sure that they're getting the you know, the IT and procurement group, best tool that's going to evolve and change effectively with whatever big changes they make in their system. And to the executive team that's going, this change, what we were quoted and what it's costing now, you know, has tripled in cost. That's a problem for us. And so that disconnect across the organization is really hard to explain. The front line doesn't care what it costs if it's a pain in the butt to use. And the executive team does care if it's a pain in the butt to use because that pain in the butt has cost them five times what they initially thought. And they are accountable, in my case, to the taxpayers of BC. <laughs> so so this matters. And that disconnect, we've got to figure out how to solution that more effectively. 
far bigger than just a safety safety conversation. Well, yeah, again, if anybody or I will leave that there, if anybody ever wants to have a coffee or a beer and talk about this problem, I have some very strong opinions about it, <laughs> but I will talk about it in another place because I do think that this is one of the things this combination of excitement for a better future, which I think is almost universal in this space, but this apprehension over being burned over and over and over again, every time somebody tries to implement a challenge, I think is so indicative of, again, probably just a fundamental opportunity in the space, but it's a complicated problem. And I think it also requires businesses to, as you said, it reevaluate the way they're approaching things beyond safety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and- the risk management, right? And that's, it's an organizational effectiveness risk. Yeah. And do we actually understand and who in an organization where you tend to have KBUs, you know, your K, your key business units or, or your departments, who actually looks at that from yeah. a complexity overarching? 100%. Yeah. How, how many times has somebody on a safety team implemented some new program within the auspices of safety that seems innocuous, but leads to... 10 or 15 more minutes of operational time across the entire organization. And if you actually quantified the cost of that, maybe you wouldn't solve the problem in that way. Yeah, I, I think challenging businesses to think about this stuff in a more holistic way. Well, and not. safety people though, Joe, because you think you're doing something better, but all that the organization is hearing from ops is, damn it, safety added another half hour to my day. safety and then then safety loses credibility because we haven't looked up and looked out at the change that we're implementing and that's the challenge of leaders to know when to press forward when to ease off how to prioritize what to to say yeah i hear what you're saying that is important but it's not as important these other things i mean that's the role and all in the language of business i just had a thought and i it's almost as if this is a half-formed thought so it might not make any sense but it's almost as if organizations stated commitment to safety and to a certain extent like the latitude safety teams are given to do things as long as they don't cost money essentially carte blanche if you want to tweak a process or how do we want to do this maybe hurting safety in the long run because it makes it too easy to implement things that hurt the broader part of the organization without having to go through some of the the broader vetting and um, operational integration challenges that if ops wanted to change the way they did something they might have to do well, I have yet to meet a safety group that's been given carte blanche, Joe. So if you can introduce me to them, I'd love to know. Because right. it's I, I've never been in that role. I've always yeah. had to have a conversation around the business case associated with any big change. And there, that I accept that accountability. I think that's important because sh- somebody should be testing my reasoning and proposal for the change. Somebody needs to. And so interestingly enough, I think it's from a safety perspective, the real challenge is in understanding the impact as safety technicians or practitioners, or when you're a one of safety department and you're saying we need this pre-qualification vendor system to speak in the language of risk and understand the impact is hugely important. hundred percent. Okay. I think we can, we can leave this behind, but there's one other topic I want to touch on before we wrap up this conversation. And that has to do with some of the work that I know you you do from an advocacy perspective. I know that you're involved in leadership in the sort of women in occupational health and safety society. I had to write that down mm-hmm. so I made sure I got the, <laughs> the, the title correct. I don't think we, we need to get fully into that because obviously my perspective is somewhat limited. And, and additionally, it's probably an episode onto itself. But I know that the 
I want to say theme phrase, but that's not the right term. But for the Women in Occupational Health and Safety Society for this year is break the bias. Am I correct? That was the International Women's Day theme, break the bias. Okay, well, then I'm reading my notes completely (laughs) incorrectly. But I'm curious if you can give me some examples of what does that kind of mean to you in the safety space? And uh, yeah, let's kind of start there. Yeah, you know, um, WAS, as it's affectionately called, um, okay. started in 2017. And it was really a group of women who got together in Calgary to have a conversation around some of the challenges that they were experiencing in the safety space. And there were different levels of professionals. So some newer to industry, some who are experienced. And the the conversation really revolved around a few key areas. And one was that safety in general, the safety group, the safety team in general, and most organizations doesn't get the mentorship and coaching that are afforded to other leaders and organization or other potential leaders. Safety professionals are often not identified in corporate succession plans. Mm. And so what would that look like? And there were a number of us that were hitting the proverbial glass ceiling as senior leaders, because the people who were being promoted into the senior vice president EVP roles or at the executive levels and in charge of the safety discipline were often coming from different avenues. They were either coming from operational roles or they were engineers, Mm. but they were managing a safety function and albeit surrounded by a team of professionals like me supporting them to make sure that the work was properly executed. So there was a bit of frustration around that. And for women in particular, it was around because you haven't been on the tools, where does the credibility associated with being a woman in safety come from? And how do you communicate and demonstrate that? And so if somebody was to say to me, Stephanie, well, you've never operated a bobcat, and you've never drilled a well, I would say, that's fine. But my area of expertise is in safety management systems. And I understand how an organization is interconnected and those interconnection points as they relate to safety. And I'm able to facilitate and make change. I can solve complex problems organizationally, not just safety problems. And so it was really around how can we be advocates for the industry learning more about that. And then we still had personal safety issues. Joe, you know, companies had these curtain policies on bullying and harassment that were ridiculous. And I'll share with you, I I was talking about this just the other day. I had this experience not that long ago in my career, probably five years ago, maybe six years ago. And I was working for an organization and we had a client and this client was calling all hours of the day and, and they were making these incredibly ridiculous demands. And my one boss said, client with a capital C, you do what you're supposed to do. Always keep the client happy. And when I said I finally had enough, I'd had enough. And just to give you an example, this particular client was calling at two o'clock in the morning, crying about his wife wanting to leave him and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't I don't care. <laughs> I'm just gonna be that one. I don't care. Why are you calling my phone at two o'clock in the morning? I'm not your crying towel. And so I went in to speak to the project director on this one and I said, I've had enough. And I demand that you do something about it. And he said to me, it was 6.30 in the morning. He always got into work early. So I was there as soon as he was there. And he said to me, Stephanie, maybe he just needs a hug. And I just about launched across the desk at him. And I said, would you say that to any of your engineers? (laughs) His hair blew back. 
Um, I still remember it. (laughs) But that is the type of sexism that we're often faced. And so if you're a woman in safety, you're expected to be caring, you're expected to be motherly. And so that bias is something that we experience all the time. You're not caring enough. Well, I'm a business person. Well, then you're too cold hearted. And so how do you manage that in an organization? And the personal safety bit is, is um, you know, we had a our inaugural event and I was sitting at a table of younger professionals. And I kid you not, Joe, 25 years ago, we used to talk about how to make sure you didn't answer your door when you were in the field, mm. um, because more than one person would shove their way into your room, you know, and it was often a put you in a heck of a situation. Or if you went out with everybody at the end of a hard week for drinks, you made sure that you left by eight o'clock mm. so that you didn't see something or get yourself in a situation where it was going to be painful and uncomfortable because you still had to work with these people. And the policies that they had in place in the organizations weren't necessarily effective. And at this inaugural event in 2017, those young professionals were talking about the latest in doorknob hardware that you could put on to keep people from getting into your door. And I thought, that's bloody shame. 21 years later, we're still having that stupid conversation. Mm. We're still having that conversation. And when people get angry, you know, why do they they attack a person's gender, they attack your sexuality, they call you a name like bitch, or I can't even tell you the last time, it wasn't that long ago, not in my current company, that, that, um, I have to say, BC Hydro does this better than anybody. They really subscribe to making sure that they follow their policies and respectful behavior in the workplace. But I can tell you that it was at another organization where I actually had somebody say, why are you so bitchy? Are you on your period? And I was like, are you seriously asking me that? Like that stuff still happens. That's a ridiculous, ridiculous comment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, yeah. I, well, I, I, I'm kind of reeling <laughs> just on the. There's a lot to unpack there. I think w- without a doubt. I mean, that's uh, as you said, the fact that you were having to worry about some of those issues 21 years ago is bad enough as it is. But the fact that those issues continue to kind of be a uh, a challenge for people and the discussion yeah. of doorknob hardware is like I had, I wrote a note. I was like, that's, that's uh, wild. And I, it speaks to, again, I guess my privilege as a, as a guy in that I would have never occurred to me that that was even a concern. And I guess that's kind of the, that's the problem. Yeah. So is there anything with that in mind and maybe to, for people who might be listening, who might be interested in getting involved in that or, or what are the resources available? What's the best way for them to engage with WASS? Sure. So actually to go to the website, wohss.com, a membership with WASS is currently, we're running a special. So, you know, it's like a buy one, get one free type of thing, I believe, but it's $50 a year. And so we invite all genders to join WASS. The key benefits are we created the first ever and only mentorship program for safety, people working in safety, all genders. So we have men, women, those who identify otherwise, taking part in the mentorship program as a mentor or as a mentee, we invite them to participate, which is really important because the problems are, you know, everything from personal safety to how do I manage that political landscape in my job? How do I learn more? Should I specialize? Should I take a master's degree in safety? Should I do an MBA? Really depends on where you want to go. And our tagline is we match people, not profiles. So we really look at what you're looking for as a mentee and we match the appropriate mentor. The other thing that we do, and it was really pivotal during the beginning of COVID, is we have informal networking events where other safety professionals can come 
we have a speaker or a presentation and you can just join in and, and share your issues or, or ask for advice. Hey, I don't know what to do in this situation. And it's a safe space. Mm. It's a safe space because we didn't have that. I didn't have that as a young professional, often as the only woman. I actually remember my husband was reminding me of this. The one time we worked in the same industry when we were in oil and gas and uh, we were driving out to a job site and I walked onto site to do some inspection work and to make sure that they had done their job pre-planning. And the entire crew went right to him and ignored me as I went on. <laughs> he said, not me, it's her. And they were like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and But that still exists. You know, how do you, and then how does operations, how do we create that relationship where we're seen as value added to operations? And so if you were to ask a field safety person, I'll share with you another story from a couple of years ago. I was doing a field visit and I had two of my younger professionals. We were heading out to a well site on a drilling rig and one was male and one was female. And I had the vice president of operations with me. And he walked in and uh, grabbed me after we left. And he said, why is there that girl here? What could she possibly know about anything to do with drilling a well? And I had to laugh because it was actually the entire opposite. She was an educated, credentialed, experienced professional. Yet he made the assumption that the younger man, that the other advisor had more value those biases still exist and they may not be public conversations, but they certainly are still there in organizations when it comes to opportunity. Mm. And so we talk about that. And so those are part of the conversations that happen in our in- informal networking and we have fun because frankly, I'm fun. Okay. Okay. And <laughs> so, so is that as far as sort of resources that would be available to members, largely it's about those mentorship programs, kind of informal networking opportunity to connect with people that can probably empathize a little bit with. uh... Yeah. The informal networking, the educational. So we do some women's specific training, the mentorship program. And then we have a number of strategic partnerships with other organizations. For example, the BCRSP in Canada, the board of registered Canadian safety professionals. I'm on the, the board of governors for that organization, but they're the certifying partner or the certifying organization here in Canada for safety people, but training organizations. So there are discounts available. There are a number of membership values, um, value items for people, but it really is, let's have a conversation and it's okay. And for our male colleagues that join, I think it's incredibly insightful for them to have a conversation about and hear some of the things that when they're encouraging their daughters to enter the industry and they know what they're sending them into, they go in eyes wide open. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if this conversation is any testament to that, I have learned some things already. So I think if, uh, yeah, it totally makes sense that that could be an amazing resource for people. Okay. So we're, we're getting, I'm just noting the time here. Uh, we're, we're very quickly approaching uh, the end of the time we have allotted. So I just want to wrap up with a few other things before we go. One of the things that we thought would be fun is like a handful of little rapid fire questions. Uh, oh, that I'm gonna, so we can do it. We can do it. You want to try? If it's yeah. uh, if it doesn't work out, we'll edit it out. No one will. No one will be the wiser. We don't have that many. It's a test run. Um, okay. So I'll throw some questions at you. First thing that comes to your mind, let us know. It doesn't need to be one word, but brevity is encouraged. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm just going to jump right into it. If you could change one thing in safety, what would it be? Perception. Okay. What's been your biggest achievement with the safety team at BC Hydro so far? Mm. Making positive change. Okay. What's your favorite thing about your current role? The people. Okay. Who's your biggest inspiration in the safety space? 
gosh. The women who started WAS. Okay. What's one thing that all safety professionals should start doing tomorrow? Learning. By that, I mean reading books. Start with Chris Hadfield, The Astronaut's okay. Guide to Life. Learn about right. risk management. That's it for my five rapid fire questions. You did awesome. It was, uh, I hope it wasn't too painful. Um, no, just caught me off guard. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right. So with that, I guess all I have to say is thank you so much for joining us. Maybe before we wrap things up, is there anything else, uh, any other messages you'd like to share or anything else you want to get out there before we shut things down? Yeah, you know, Joe, I, I want to say thank you to the people who have worked in safety and to the fellow leaders in the industry. They've carried a big and heavy weight. They always have had a huge portfolio to carry. But this last couple of years, being the organizational experts on a global pandemic, which I'm sure they hadn't necessarily been educated in or trained in, they've worked hard. And I really, you know, I have nothing but the utmost respect to everybody who goes into safety and stays there. And, and thank you to all of them. Awesome. Okay. Well, I think that's a great note to leave things on. Thank you again for joining us. This has been amazing. It's been great to get to know you and dig into all these other things. And I guess with that, we'll shut it down. So thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for making it all the way through the episode. I just wanted to mention again, this podcast is brought to you by OpsLock. OpsLock is the new way to keep your team safe at work. We're basically the most modern and advanced health and safety tool out there. If that sounds interesting to you, one of the things that we're offering to listeners of this podcast is free access to our workplace observations tool, meaning that you can roll out a digital workplace observations tool in your company, no matter what the size is, for free. If that sounds interesting or you just want to learn a little bit more, go to our website, opslock.com, fill out the Get a Demo form, let us know that you heard about us on the podcast, and someone, probably me, will set up a call with you. So, Anyway, that's it. Thanks a lot for listening through the episode and I hope you have a great day.